0: Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, RedemptionsHill.com. All right, well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. So this is it. This is our final sermon over the series of 1 John, take two. Uh, we, we did this book uh, quite a few years Ago. So we won't have time to kind of delve back into the ins and outs of this whole book, and it's not really necessary to do so. But uh, right as we jump right into it, I do want to bring our attention back to uh, where John started things out for this book, because it's kind of crucial for today. He opened the book by declaring just as, as clearly uh, as he possibly could that I'm writing you these things so that your joy may be complete, Uh, This means John didn't hide his purpose. He didn't make us kind of work for it or, or look for it. He throws it out there from the very beginning section, saying, I have a specific goal in mind that you may have a joy that is complete in Christ, a joy that the world does not have. And outside of Christ, that type of joy is not available. I want you to know that this exists. I want you to have it, and I want it to be just overflowing and full. And then the entire book ends up being him marching out this idea and shaping it for us, how joy Joy comes from, uh, and he circles around three things over and over. Joy comes from God's truth and not the world's truth. Uh, Joy comes from obeying God, which is to live in light of God's truth with the the day-to-day ins and outs of our lives. We trust Him enough to obey Him. And then the the third thing that he says that joy comes from is it actually comes from loving each other, fellow members of the body of of Christ, that these three things uh, are where Christian joy comes from. And as we participate in them and give ourselves over to them, our joy in Christ grows and is magnified. in in just a big way. And then that brings us to this end, the, the fifth chapter where John adds something. He says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it may seem weird at the beginning. John says, hey, I'm gonna write to you uh, for your joy. Uh, and then it almost seems as if he's changed his mind, like oh, I've got a better goal in mind now. Now I'm actually writing with this new purpose of you knowing that you have eternal life. But what we need to know is these two goals at the beginning, that your joy is complete and that you know that you have eternal life, these are not opposing goals. They're not mutually exclusive. They don't work against each other. They actually are, are, are two statements that are bookends to the book of a powerful idea that, that kind of works together it's one cohesive thought what we know what we need to know right off the bat is john is leading us to kind of understand this that we uh, would know our joy is partially tied to knowing that we have eternal life right that's what he's connecting there's a true and deep joy in knowing your eternity, knowing that you have eternal life. We, we tend to believe um, also that joy is this thing that maybe we experience later in life, but John is going to say, no, 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 joy is available to you now, knowing that you have eternal life is a source of joy, and we need to kind of let that simmer for a moment because this is kind of a countercultural idea uh, that he's presenting to us here. We tend to believe that joy comes through experiences, or joy comes through preferred outcomes coming out your way, or joy comes from attaining the things that you really want out of life, which is really to kind of relegate joy to the land of what you see and what you get and what you end up with in life. But John is presenting to us that joy doesn't flow out of only what you do in life as much as it flows out of what you know. Because what you know, what you understand, what you grasp intimately will then shape the course of your life and it will shape what you experience and the things that you do and how you live. If you're following me, John isn't saying uh, that, that what you do in your life doesn't matter. He's saying what you know literally changes everything about your life and therefore what you know specifically that you have eternal life in Christ can be a deep deep fountain of joy for your life. Knowing this to be true does something to our hearts and it produces a joy that other things like vacations or jobs or cars or relationships or money or status, they just can't get you this type of thing. The word that theologians have used to describe this is is assurance assurance of faith, that we are assured that we have eternal life now. It's not a question. It's not a wonder. It's not a maybe. I hope so. As long as he doesn't change his, his mind, it is a reality because if we believe in the name of Jesus, we are certain that we have eternal life, not just in the future, but we have it now. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I think it's kind of helpful. You cannot really know the joy of the Lord until you are perfectly certain that things are well between you and him. I think we get this. The the wondering, is he angry? Did I screw up too much? Did I go too far? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that'll always kind of mess with your heart, but there's a joy that comes from knowing that me and him are okay. That we are good. And this is part of what he wants to lead us in. This type of assurance so that we can navigate kind of the craziness of the world that we are in. So we'll read this and try and flesh this out. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21 are the, the last texts of the book and the last ones that we have here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know uh, that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. That's confusing. We'll get to that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. There are a couple kind of interesting and important things that we need to understand here and some important shifts that he presents to us in the text, and he starts with the assurance, the assurance that we have uh, uh, in Christ eternal life, and then he quickly ties on to assurance this idea of confidence, and he moves there on purpose. What you have assurance of, he's going to build confidence in. The idea is what we are assured of, what we know we have, we can take that in, that assurance in our life and confidently walk without insecurity of the thing that we know to be true. Uh, This line of thought should make complete sense to us because it's difficult to be confident about things that we're just not sure about, right? The person who acts overly confident about things that they don't know, this is either an incredible marker of pride or an incredible marker of ignorance. When the world presses down on us, what we're not sure of will make us insecure. John's saying, I don't want that for you. I want you to be sure of your eternal life so you can be confident in it and walk that out. Now, here's how we've kind of seen this played out. And forgive me because this, this example will paint with a large brush. Uh, maybe it might seem a little bit unfair, uh, but, but here it is. Uh, where have we seen this assurance and confidence thing go wrong? Well, uh, in millennials, right, this age group, a trend started. Not in all, but in many, a trend started of telling children that they could be whatever they wanted to be, right? I was a husky kid who could not jump. Oh, you could be an NBA player, even though I'm not really a millennial, but this is what started. You can be anything. You can do anything. And then this other trend started with this whole uh, generation of children it was telling kids that they were perfect all the time. It was reshaping reality to tell them they were never wrong, and it led into redirection versus ever telling a, a kid that they were wrong. And it told them many, many things like they were super special all of the time. And it's great to validate your children, but it went a little bit awry when the, even the invention of kind of like participation trophies were invented for this generation. Here's a trophy when you literally did nothing. And then the trend was added to this that teachers. Uh, began to get calls from parents who lashed out at the teachers for giving their kids grades that they didn't like. My my Johnny deserves a better than a C-. Well, your Johnny didn't do any of his work. I don't care. He deserves better this started happening. You put this, you're never wrong, you can be whatever you want. Here is everything that you want. And you match that with this was the first generation uh, of the kind of social media digital revolution who grew up with likes, comments, and affirmation online. And there was another source of validation given to them all over the place on this online world that actually wasn't real in the real world. What's what's my point? And again, I know I'm painting with an overly broad Brush, a bulk of a generation was given extreme amounts of confidence. Uh, as they were given things quicker than most people had had it given to them, probably the motives of their parents were good. Uh, They were given things very quickly. They didn't have to learn to wait or be patient. They were told over and over that they were perfect. And they really had this illusion ingrained in them into everything. Their parents even fought against anything that didn't feed this idea of perfection for this kid. So with a massive amount of confidence, uh, those kids, an entire generation, were sent out into the world. When you're told you're perfect, you're never wrong, you can have everything you want, and and there's just no fault in you, and and then you get sent out into the real world, how do you think that went? Uh, An entire generation largely kind of got crushed by it because they figured out that the the confidence that their parents gave them in the world that they created wasn't real in the actual world, and and this caused a really difficult thing. They they got crushed quite hurt for quite some time. Now, uh, if you look at how the world has considered millennials because of this, they painted them back with a broad, a broad brush as well, saying that millennials were entitled and selfish and lazy and self-interested and all of these things. But Simon Sinek, who did a TED Talk that was just masterful about this, he says that the millennials were actually none of these things. Those poor kids just have their confidence crushed when they went out in the world and realized that, that the, the, the assurances they were given weren't actually Real, right? The illusion of what they were confident in came crumbling down and it hurt them quite a bit. It took them quite a bit of time to recover from that. These were not bad kids, they were victims of a bad experiment. They needed a new confidence in what was real and they could really be assured of to build them back up. So no matter who you are, I think the past 15 months and the pandemic has kind of illuminated something for us, the reality that things get really rough when we have no assurance. Right? There was a difficult enough uh, to, to have COVID around, but the uncertainty is it was what really started play, plaguing, uh, plaguing us and becoming savage in our minds. Uh, when will this end? When can I see my family? Is this safe? Is that safe? Will this end? Will I be able to do that again? The uncertainty of all of that was a huge mental struggle for all of us. Well, John is taking a moment here so that type of uncertainty won't loom over you in your walk of faith. I don't want you to be unsure. I want you to be assured of what is true. And then I want you to grow in confidence through seeing what is true actually take place in your life. This is what he's going to do is show us that regular believers, not all stars, not theologians, not only the Apostle Paul, regular believers like us can have a strong confidence in what they're sure of. Not a confidence that leads into a bravado and swagger that makes us cruel people in the world, but a confidence that lets us have joy even when things are really hard. This is what John's looking to do. Now, part of the confidence, again, that he wants us to have is this Romans 8 confidence. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, "'For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the type of confidence he wants, no matter what comes. Are there going to be terrible things that come? Yes, but no matter what comes, how good or how bad, I am loved and I am safe and I am owned by a Savior. So in that aim of assurance, John writes us, Uh, to tell us that those who believe in the name of the Son of God, and this belief here is not a mental nod. It's a belief that actually leads into the way we live. It's a belief that leads into submitting to Jesus and getting transformed by him. For all who fall into that camp, who follow him, get formed by him, and are directed by him, they can have eternal life now. Man, I hope that we're beginning to get this in John, what he wants to tell us over and over. Your eternal life is not only a future benefit that kicks in when you kick the bucket. There is a beauty in eternal life that is available to you now. You can experience all of it. No, not all of it, but you can experience parts of it now and then have confidence as you begin to kind of feel you ex- yourself experiencing this life now. John uh, will, with the rest of the, the section here, show us different ways that we can experience eternal life now and let our confidence grow through that. A good way to think of how he'll speak of this assurance in the text is John is going to start telling us over and over whose we are that's an ownership, whose we are. That idea may or may not be new to you, but the entire Bible walks out this concept, every man and every woman from every nation, every race, every tribe, no matter your education level or your economic level, no matter anything about you, every man or woman or person ever to be born belongs to one of two sources, to God the Father or the evil one, no exception. We are all someone's. And the one that we belong to is the one that we are following, whether we know it or not. And John wants to say, hey, there are, uh, there are cause and effects from who you belong to. There are serious benefits to belonging to God. And he wants to encourage you by, by showing you some of the benefits that you can walk in in the here and now. And again, let that build confidence in you. The first benefit of eternal life, knowing that you are God's, being owned by him, he will bring out in the world of prayer. He says we can have confidence that when we pray according to God's will that he hears us. Now, that's a beautiful point for our hearts to, to kind of lay a hold of because because we belong to God, because Jesus' sacrifice has wiped away our sin and our shame uh, completely, we can boldly approach God the Father as sons and daughters, not as rebels or enemies, we can come with our prayers directly to him. And John's saying, do you understand the magnitude that you can go to him by yourself? And he hears you. He hears us. We don't have to worry, hey, is anyone home? Was he pay attention? Did he have more important people to, to listen to when I gave that prayer? Uh, did, did my prayer land on deaf ears? John is saying, take confidence in knowing that if you are his, you are heard. God listens to you. I wish we wouldn't miss the beauty of this. The eternal God listens and hears you, and he hears me. We might be tempted to pass that without truly grasping a hold of it today, but even one of the core desires of men and women is is to be heard, to be seen, to not wonder if anybody is listening or if anyone cares. John is saying the God of the universe cares, and he hears you. He is listening. God is all ears, and he cares. If you wonder if he cares, he does. He cares for you enough even to listen to any request, the good and the bad, the ones that do line up and don't line up. He listens to your requests. I, I met with a pastor locally in town, and uh He's a, he's a guy i just met this year, and he caught me off guard. Right? He, he's, he's lived in California. He's lived up in the Northeast. He's just a different dude than me. I, I, I like him, but, but he caught me off guard in a conversation. He was talking with another pastor, a couple of us together, and, and, and this other pastor was kind of sharing with him a really difficult and hard situation, like a really hard one. Uh, and, and, and what this pastor did is he looked at him, And he said, brother, I want you to know that I hear you and I see you. Super weird for me. Like he manually like slowed down the conversation, looked the man in the eyes purposely to say, I see you. I hear you. And my inner kind of jerk came out and I was like, of course you hear him. You hippie, we're in the same room. And then I began to understand what he was doing. He's showing him a Kindness. He's reaching down towards the man in a world of chaos where people don't really want to hear, they just want to be heard. And he's saying, in this moment, I'm not thinking of what I'm going to say next. I'm not thinking about my feelings or my other things going on. Right now, I'm all ears to you. I hear you. And and I'm I'm walking into what you're experiencing now. I hear you. Man, I was wrong because I was like, that's a weird thing to do. And then I learned like, no, that's actually a super kind thing to do. What John wants us to know This is what God wants us to feel. It's not a wonder. It's God going, I hear you. Will I always get my way? No. But I'm listening. I hear you. And I care. And my ear is towards you. Man, that's a big deal. The God of the universe will listen. Slow your heart down enough to just perceive that. And even more than that, It's not just that he listens. When you pray according to his will, he actually acts. He grants requests. You might be asking, well, how do I pray according to God's will? Pray with a Bible open next to you. Continue to seek God's face and his will and his plans through the scriptures and let the reading of the scriptures that you are into begin to flow into your prayers more often. Read read and pray. Mix those things together, and as you do, see that your prayers begin to more naturally kind of land into the will and, and, uh, of God. Do you see that? As you read, God molds your will to be more like Him, and then your petitions sound more like Him, and He'll even answer those things. Don't miss that. The confidence we have as believers comes as we realize that God has started making our will line up with His. This is called transformation. We get transformed as we read uh, the word and then we pray the word and we seek God through the reading and then we speak to God through the prayer and as we do all of this, we gain confidence uh, looking at the last year of our life that God has changed us. He's changed our will. He's changed the way that we prayed and he's changed some of the prayers and then we've even seen his hand move in the prayers that uh, that he has granted that we have sent towards him. What does that do? To know that God has answered serves to, again, build confidence in you. One of the practices that I've been trying to do uh, really for the last several years is incorporating uh, celebration into when God answers a prayer. And I would encourage all of us to do this. Celebrate it. Because when you pray and God answers, it means not only has he heard, but he's cared enough to act. So I've just started telling people, God, I prayed about this, guys, and God did this. How big of a deal is it? It's not braggadocious to say, God answered my prayer. It's a source of building each other up. I want you to know to build your faith, and I need to tell you to build my faith. That God heard me, and he answered, and he did something. He cares. That's confidence building. Worship the God who has open ears and his hands aren't tied. This is what John is saying. You can be assured of whose you belong to because you know who listens to you and who actually acts according to what you've asked. Then verses 16 and 17. That goes into the tricky part uh, of, of sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Quite tricky at the end. Uh, and a little bit awkward to parse, but uh, even as we talked about it in DNA, I found, man, my guest was just completely wrong about this. I think John is, is kind of teaching us about how to pray for one another in this text. Right? He's already said, hey, when you speak and give God your personal request, that he listens and he will grant some of them when they're according to his will. But now he's saying, hey, when you pray for your community around you, the, the believers that you actually walk with, uh, and, and you see him do something, that's also a way to build confidence. Right? When God begins to mold us enough to where we care about the people around us to pray for their sins and where they struggle, and we see God act in the middle of this, we grow confidence and look at what God has done in my friend, in my brother, in my, in my sister. Look, look at how you walk my brother who's going down a, a, a weird road uh, into repentance and brought him into life. The part about praying for sins that lead to death and that don't lead to death, The confusing part of that text really can probably be dealt with with hermeneutics. Scripture interprets scripture. So kind of what's going on here. He's not telling you there's certain sins that will spiritually lead to death. The Bible tells you that if you know Christ and your faith is in him, that all of your sins are forgiven. So there is no longer a sin that leads you into spiritual death. But if you aren't a believer, every sin is walking you into spiritual death. His point is just pray for the brothers and sisters around you. The ones who have come to life in Christ, but you see them walking the other direction, care for them enough, love them enough to actually pray for them and go to God about what's going on in their lives and see them change. Pray for the local family around you. And this is one that's been interesting for me to kind of navigate. Social media has made this really, really hard for us. We see people... That, or things about people's lives of people that if the social media wasn't here, we would never hear from them. Right? You, you know things about people who live three hours away or one hour away, maybe even in this town and you're not even friends. You know all of these things about all of these people and this overwhelming thing happens in your head of you're, you're trying to figure out what to do and who to pray for. And if you're anything like me, your mom texts you, hey, did you see? Like, no, that's why I turned Facebook off. We're always trying to figure out who to pray for and what to do. He's not saying pray for everyone that you ever see or ever see their problem. He's saying pray for the people here. Pray for the brothers and sisters around you. Pray for the people that you know and are known by and see God walk them into freedom. Sometimes we get overwhelmed when if we would just take the time to pray for the people that we look in the eyes more, we could see some beautiful things happen in their lives and ours. Again, he's not saying you have to pray for everyone in the world. He's asking you to pray for your family. And watch God defend your family in times and watch his hand as you go. Not only did he answer some of my prayers, he has borne this love in my heart for the people around me. I've prayed for them and I've seen God deliver them. Man, God's two for two. He's acted in my life and he's acted in their life. He's, he's doing something. Now it says, we know that everyone who has been bored of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that, that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When we are God's, remember this is all assurances about who, whose you are. When we are God's, there are things that happen, real changes that come to pass. A major one that John points out here, but he, he's really been pointing out all over the book, but a major one is the fact that we do not keep on sinning that was his uh, how can you be in the, lar- uh, the, the light and the dark don't 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 work together sort of thing all over the book his point isn't that we no longer struggle or we never do anything wrong or that we have attained perfection his point is when you are gods your disposition towards sin fundamentally changes Right? So if you say, uh, if you look at your life now and, and, and the time before you say that you were saved and your disposition, the way that you feel about sin has never actually changed, then the reality is you aren't God's. He changes the way that we deal with sin and through believing in Jesus to where we will not continue on in repentant sin as if sin doesn't matter. If you ever remember, maybe if you're a little bit rebellious possibly, do you ever remember trying to get away from, with things from your parents? Like trying to hide it or telling a little half-truths or just trying to like, how much can I get away with? This is no longer your disposition if you are His. You're not always trying to figure out how close you can get to the line without getting smacked. This is what he's saying here. We don't want to sin. Do we, like Paul, still struggle? Yeah but we want to not sin. We want to follow Jesus more. And when we talk about this, what it's saying is we want to walk away from sin to mortify our flesh and choose to believe Jesus with the actions of our lives. John is saying, when you do this, take this as evidence of your eternal life because you could not do that without being saved. Your disposition towards sin does not change without a new heart given to you by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, hey, if you've seen God move, if you've seen him change your, your affections or your intentions or your feelings, if you've seen him in a chaotic world change the way that you relate to the world that is sinning around you, know that that's, that's proof of eternal life working in you. This isn't just earthly remorse or shame if you literally don't want to sin the way you did once. He's going, you need to have confidence in that because that's not normal. Everyone in the world does not have that. The Father has changed you. Take confidence. Are you perfect? No. But is he working in you? Yes, there's confidence there. And then take that confidence in knowing that even when you mess up and fall short, even when you do commit a sin, when you do something that you shouldn't have, when we feel that reality and understand that the enemy has tempted you and that time he just got the better of you, even when that happens, know that though the enemy got the better of you in that exchange, he can't steal you. Those are his words here. Know that he will never lay a hold of you. And that doesn't mean never touch you. It means that you'll never be his again. In the world, we start off not as gods. And when God grabs a hold of you, John's saying, even when you fall on your face though, the enemy will not take you back. Now, there are two groups that we fall into quite often legalism and licentiousness. Realize that he's just talked to both. To the one that maybe leans towards licentiousness and they want to keep a hold of their sins too long. And John's message is understand that we do not keep on sinning if we are his. But then to the person with maybe a more sensitive conscience or maybe who just flows into legalism and they've done something wrong and they're almost shocked by it and they're kind of beating themselves up too much about it and wonder, did I go too far? Is this too much for God? He's going, no, 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 no. Satan will never lay hold of you again. There's a balance here that, that he's telling us. And I think we'll probably end up doing a whole sermon about it pretty soon. But John is laying out a paradigm here of spiritual warfare for us. All too often, we're oblivious to the reality of spiritual warfare that is happening. Even though there's entire sections of the New Testament devoted specifically to that, we don't understand at times that we're on a battlefield every day, whether we admit it or not. And some churches kind of taught that that if you are gods, that you're almost kind of out of the war, that you're Switzerland. That, that you're safe, that, that, no, that you can't get winged anymore. Essentially, that a believer maybe can't be tempted as much as an unbeliever, or, or they can't be tried as much, or they can't be affected as much, or, or even it goes as far as to say that, that the devil or demons can't actually try and, try and mess with them anymore, that we are Christ and the enemy can do absolutely nothing to us. This is kind of what has been elevated, but what we have to understand is, biblically, this is patently false. That's not true. Satan is real and Satan is working. He is so real that the Bible calls him uh, or says that the whole world is under the power of the evil one because he's ruling all around. He is real and it's not difficult to look around and see his hand working. Is it hard to see evil, injustice, hatred, violence, sin being praised, God being mocked? No. No. That's his hands touching all the things around us. What John wants us to see is that if we are gods, the devil cannot steal our salvation, but please, please do not be unaware. He can tempt you, and you can fall for that temptation. Even more so, he can tempt you to do things that even if you are saved, he can tempt you to do things that will ruin your marriage. We have to begin to understand this. You're not safe from all things. He can do things that will walk you, even if you've been in church 10, 15, 20 years and lead an MC, he can walk you right into addiction super fast. He can break down your relationships with your other fellow believers. He can oppress you. He can confuse you. He can lure you. And even more dangerously, as we talked about all over this book, he can do his master move of putting you through, uh, to sleep through indifference. That's his brilliant play. Please, please, please understand that he can still tempt. He cannot steal you, but it does not mean that he cannot tempt you and try you and walk you into things that will hurt you horrifically bad. Trying to walk the balance of not trying to, like, fire and brimstone... uh, scare us to death, but we've become a little oblivious to thinking that certain things don't matter. The enemy is always prowling around looking to steal your joy and crush whatever he can. When the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket, when things look beyond repair, repair, this is a crucial time that we need this, this assurance close to our hearts. Because in those moments where things are are just going nuts, our confidence in God can take some hits. John is saying just because the evil one seems to be flexing and you see his power all around and it's not difficult to look around and see him working, don't for a second think that this means that he is winning or will win. He can't steal you, and we know the ending. King Jesus will split the skies, come back as the warrior who's the lion and the lamb, and his perfect righteous rule will be over all things, and the enemy will be crushed. All of our sin remnants will be completely gone. We've got to balance this well. Don't be so scared of the devil that you're worried that he can steal your salvation. Don't be so oblivious that you think that he can't hurt you really badly, though. We have to balance that one. Verse 20 and 21 again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. John uses this repetition of three we know statements towards the end. We know that everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that we are from God, even though that the world is going crazy and you see the enemy's power all over it, and we know that the Son of God has given us understanding so that we may know him, so that we can be in him who is true through Jesus. This last section, remember, he's been building our confidence. Your joy is tied to what you have confidence in and what you're sure of. He's trying to build your confidence through this assurance. He's saying uh, if we now understand to, to some degree God more, and if we now somehow feel more connected that we know God more through Jesus, understand that too is eternal life. If your understanding of God or your relational connection to God has grown in some way, he's saying that is proof. That's proof of eternal life now that we understand and are known by him. This is a beautiful aspect of eternal life that the world does not have. The eternal God has chosen to speak to reveal himself to us. And as we begin to kind of read and grow and do this process of continually submitting ourselves to the gospel together, we know him more and are known by him more. And John's going, this is a beautiful confidence if you'll take it as such. So often we put our confidence in, is the world going the way that we want rather than seeing that God has done something and we understand him more and know him more than we did in the past. He's saying, use that as evidence. Then it may seem weird or almost haphazard that he throws in at the end, oh yeah, and little children, keep yourself from idols. That's kind of a weird way to end the book, right? All of this stuff, oh yeah. But it's not random at all. If the entire drive of this book has been about our joy, which is intimately connected to our assurance and what we have confidence in about our eternal life, then we must know that there are things and means that can quickly deteriorate our joy and steal from us our confidence in our eternal life. You you following me? There are things that can build your joy and your confidence, and there's also things that can tear it down, that can deteriorate it. Those things, namely, are called idols. The things that we give ourselves to in the world, the, the language that we've used all over the book of 1 John, is the things that we give our attention to and our time to, those are our idols. Our idols are fed in the economy of attention. That is what we worship. Yes, we all have to have, most all of us have to have jobs. What you give your attention to outside of your job all of the time is what you worship. John wants us to be really careful with that. John is saying, make no mistake, there is no way to keep your idols and your biblical joy at the same time. You cannot firmly grasp a hold of both and keep all the things in the world that you want and then have a full helping of the joy and confidence in the Lord at the same time. We cannot live in the full depth of our eternal life now while simultaneously trying to grab a hold of all the idols that our heart wants to chase at the whole time. The whole world may may grab at idols. They may preach that they are fine. They may elevate them and say, this is where happiness and this is where joy and this is fulfillment comes from. The whole world may do that, but John is warning us little children. This is a term of endearment. Please, please, please don't fall into that. Keep yourself from idols so that you can live in the fullness of the communion that is available to you through Christ now. Are you following me? There are things in our lives They may not send you to hell, but they may absolutely destroy the way that your communion with God feels and works right now. John is going, be careful of that. The question for you and, and me today may just be this. If everything else falls away, may, maybe this is part of it. Is the Holy Spirit currently asking you to, to lay something down? Is he asking you to repent, to to walk away? I don't know where where that is. It can be tiny, it can be big, it can can be whether it's an attitude or, or a pursuit, I don't know. But is there something even now as we talk about it that it flashes in the back of your mind that the Holy Spirit is saying you need to drop that for your joy and your good and your experience of your eternal life? If that is the case, would you hear him and do it? God does not want to steal anything from you that will bring you life. Man, I need to say that to my own heart. He doesn't want you to stay away from anything good. He wants to walk you into his goodness. Man, I'll be super honest with you. Even as I prepped this morning, something flashed in my mind. You need to drop that. It should be quite regular that God realigns and transforms and says, hey, be careful of that one. Hey, be careful of that. Oh, that we would be ones to quickly hear the Spirit, lay things down, and grow in our joy because of it. Now, I know that John has covered a lot in this last section, but my my hope is that we can kind of boil it all down. Because it it looks like a a weird grab bag, doesn't it? But, But it's not meant to be. We need assurance. We need things to grow confident in about where we stand with God. John is showing us here this type of confidence. He's saying, if you want confidence that you really have eternal life, that Christ really has paid your debt and that you're united with God the Father, that you are his and that that you will never be taken away. If you want that assurance that you have this eternal life that can be lived in now and experienced in the future, then ask yourself these sets of questions. What we understand is this mixed grab bag, it it, it serves to be a metrics for us. Do you want to grow in your confidence and ask yourself these questions? Have I prayed and seen God answer to any of my prayers? If you have, then know that your God, your Father, has heard you. First thing, He's listening and He has heard. He's lined up your will with His, which is a big deal if we're honest about the, the intrinsic works of our heart. And then take confidence in, not only as He listened, molded your will, but He has acted on your behalf. That is a source of confidence. Take confidence and strength in knowing your Father listens and He cares and He's acted. Then ask, have I been transformed to where I walk with a community enough to where I actually want to pray with them about areas that they're struggling? We need work on this, guys. How often do we not pray, but we get bitter? Do we not pray, but we get disappointed? Do we not pray, but we'll kind of be passive aggressive? He's saying, no, 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 I want to transform you enough to where you pray for people. And then have you been transformed enough to where that happens? And then you pray for the people around you about their struggles, and you see God bring them into life even through what's going on. John is saying take confidence in that as well. It's another marker that God has brought you into eternal life. Now, not only has he done things in your prayers, but he's done things in the people around you through the prayers that you have given. Then ask, has your disposition towards sin changed? As in, do you want to flee from it? Not do you want to get away with it, or do you wish God didn't care about it? Do you want to flee from it? Do you want to, to the best of your abilities, repent and be holy? Do you want to be obey Jesus and submit to him so that you can find life in him? If you have or if you want that and if you are doing that to some degree, then take confidence. This is a sign that God has given you a new heart. Of God taking the old you that was spiritually dead and bringing you to new life in him, God has literally changed you. You're a new creation. The old you that existed isn't there anymore. There's new affections and new desires and new wirings and God has done that. Let that build you up as confidence in what he has done. See how far God has brought you. Are you perfect and are you complete? No, neither am I. But sometimes take the win and celebrate. That's why the Bible says that the power of our testimony is a big deal. Take the testimony of your life of how he has changed you and let that build you up. He's done a work. He's got more work to do, but he's done a work. Then ask the other part, do I to some level understand God more? Do I know him perfectly? Absolutely not. Even the word tells us, like we, we, we seem through like a dimly lit mirror. like We can see kind of parts, and we can see shadows, and we get ideas, but we do not see clearly. But but is the clarity of us knowing God or understanding Him greater than it actually was before? And do we actually know Jesus more than we did before? If you would ask that question of yourself and say, yeah, man, I, I do know more about God, and I do know God more, and I'm known more by Him, and I'm actually experiencing life in God to some level, does it mean that the clouds part and the angels sing all the time? No, but I'm experiencing something as God is with me and, and molding me. John is saying, well, to take confidence in that too. You, little old you, are intimately alone by the God of the universe. Guys, we all struggle, we just mask it with self-confidence. Do they like me? Do they accept me? Do they want to be around me? Do they the God of the universe wants to know and be known by you? He's proved it by speaking. He's proved it through his patience, and Jesus says it over and over and over. Come to me. Come to me. Not not have your life go perfect. Come to me and be known by me and let me know you, and see if that doesn't do something profound in your heart. John wants us to take these metrics, the question about, our personal prayers, the question about God changing our heart and community to where we pray for them, the the, the question about our change in our disposition towards sin, the question about knowing God more and and being known by Him more. He wants us to take all of that as this metrics, And and remember in the language of last week, this kind of trial language, and you take all the evidence before you, and He wants you to take that evidence and, and deliver a verdict over your life of whose you are. If you can say God has listened and answered prayers, if you can say he's worked with you in community, that he has molded you and changed your disposition, he's saying that evidence is overwhelming. You're his. You're his. Take confidence in that. Understand you not only have eternal life that pays off later, you have eternal life right here and right now. You can feed off of that. You can walk in it. You can worship in confidence that God has done a great work. He's not done, but he's he's done something. And that God who has done so much still wants to know you more and more and more. I believe that John wants us to leave with this confidence that inspires worship. Why do we lift our hands? Why do we sing these songs? Is it stirring our own emotions? No, it's declaring, you've done a work. This is true about you. You've been patient. When I have I've not, it, John wants us to walk away with this type of worship that says, Man, I see the evidence. I see you working. I've seen what you've done. I, I see you still at work. I see those markers in my life. Thank you, God. Gratitude and joy, He wants to overflow from the confidence you have through seeing God work, not this bravado confidence. But the confidence goes, I'm not crazy. He really has done something. For many of us, I would say, ask those questions in worship and worship in light of that. And then I would also say this, if, if you ask those questions this morning and your answers are somewhat different. I mean, I haven't seen God answer any of my prayers. God hasn't birthed a, a love in my heart to pray for other people. God hasn't really changed my actions. I don't see sin differently. I just, I kind of, you know what? try and be kind of good and I don't really think that I understand him anymore and I feel crickets as far as being known by him so I don't I don't don't know if there's actually any confidence from me there here's the ask, I want to invite you to change that To, to pray to God and to say man I want to be yours I've been interested in you but man I don't think I've ever actually been yours. God, will you save me? You don't need a perfect prayer for that. I want you to lead me. I want that joy and confidence in you. God, come, save me. Come, draw me. Switch me from interested to owned by you. I submit. King Jesus, I'm not even sure exactly what this means from here on out, but that is what I want. I'll just say this. and I'll tell you a little bit. of, of. I don't have time for a whole story. I grew up in church, was there all the time, got saved later in life. If you've been around a long time, and this understanding, man, I don't have any confidence in that, and you're like, man, I don't know what to do with that. There is no shame no matter when you become his. If God is drawing you, would you you just pray about that? Man, I'd be happy to pray with you about that today as well if you have questions. But how great would it be to to realize, man, God's been drawing me to this all this time, and I just didn't really know it. There's no shame in God awakening. There's just joy. The Bible preaches that over and over. So here it is. We'll we'll close. John's whole idea is not trying to get you to do a million things. He's going, believer, take heart. Have confidence in what you can be assured of. God has given you eternal life, and we can see shadows of that now. We can see it breaking in now. If you see that, be thankful. Grow in that. Say, hey God, will you keep going in that? Will you keep doing some of that? Maybe it will even challenge us to go like, man, God really does answer his prayers. And I, I, I haven't been praying very much. Maybe it will challenge you to walk into that part of your eternal life more now. The, the thing is for us, be built up in confidence in this. Your God is real. Your God loves you. He hears you. He works on your behalf. He's transforming you and he wants to know you and be known more by you. That's great news. Man, you guys can come back up. We will take communion today. Um, The cups are available in the back if you didn't grab one, but... 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as we close today, part of what we're doing at the, the table is, is remembering. The only way that you have this eternal life is through Jesus. The only way is through what he did on the cross. So as we're taking the, the, the bread, and like, like, let's be honest, it's the nasty wafer for right now, and the juice, you're saying, your body is broken. I can rest in that. And when you take the cup, you're saying, my full shame is overcome by what you have done. God, build me up in that. I haven't felt very confident in that. Will you build my confidence in that now, Lord, that you have done everything I need, that you have brought me into your righteousness and changed me? God, as I take, will you fill me? It's about remembering what he has done, and I pray that as you do that, that your heart would be strengthened. Would you stand with me, and then we'll close in worship. God, I pray today, Lord, that you would, Create in us joy and gratitude. Starting to become more aware that maybe one of the enemy's greatest tricks are to hide what we should actually have confidence in from us. So I pray that just maybe even examples would flow into our mind. Where you have answered, you have worked, you have drawn near, Lord, may we see it. May we grow confident not in us or in our resume or even the power of our belief, but may we grow confident in you. Your hands have reached out and they have grabbed us, Lord, so I pray that we'd be confident in that. Holy Spirit, come and work. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to be confident in you and not ourselves. Teach us to lean into the joy that is only found in you. Lord, I pray pray that you break the chains of legalism that always make us hyper worried about doing this or doing that. Lord, may we just point at joy in you. Transform us, make us yours. Make us confidence in the power that has risen from the Christ from the grave is in us, Lord. Lord, I pray if there's someone who's far off that they would come to know you. As well. Holy Spirit draws each and every heart closer to you. Be glorified. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. May we walk away with your greatness in view. We pray that in your name, God. Amen.